You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, affordable real estate investing with Lisa Phillips. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. So glad you're here. And we are talking about a topic that you guys love talking about. And you ask me tons of questions on and it's something I adore and love. And it's real estate, real estate investing. How do you get into real estate investing? How do you break these barriers? How do you build wealth using real estate? And I'm talking all of that through all those topics and talking points with Lisa Phillips. Lisa Phillips bounced back from foreclosure and losing her job to become a real estate investor. And now she's teaching the everyday person like you and myself how to invest, how to find and invest in rental properties that cost less than 50,000. Like where, where do they do that? We are gonna talk more about that in the episode. We're gonna talk about how you find those kind of homes. How do you invest where you don't live? So if you live in a high cost of area living like myself, New York City, Where do you find homes like that? How do you start investing when you feel like there's a barrier to entry because of price? We're going to talk about all the things. Today's podcast is sponsored by Navit. Navit is a brand new podcast that I am super, super excited about because it is talking about the things I love talking about on this podcast. And that is how do we inspire women to become more prosperous on our own terms? So how do we elevate the way we experience the world? Navit believes that women are redefining what wealth means to them, and we finally have access to our own money, and it's time we start owning it, start talking about it, start managing it on our way to financial freedom. And so hearing how other women have rocked their lifestyles and their finances and travel, especially travel, (laughs) we are going after it. And I love that platforms are focusing on this, and Navit is one of those platforms, and they're doing that through their podcast. So they provide tips and resources and insights through weekly discussions and guest interviews. I just happened to be a guest on their podcast. so You should definitely check it out. You can also listen to the podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. Navit is also a money management app that speaks to the feminine experience. And I appreciate when companies particularly take time to talk to us when it's made by us because it just resonates a bit differently and really uniquely. And so I want you to check out not only the podcast, but their app because you're able to set up tangible saving goals to meet your lifestyle priorities. You can check out the premium version for free for 30 days. Download it now at nav.it. And also don't forget to check out their podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. All right, without further ado, let's hop into this conversation with Lisa. Hey, journeyers, really excited as I always am. For this conversation, I am talking to Lisa Phillips. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jamila. So happy to be here. Yeah. And let me tell you why I'm excited to talk to you because you are an expert. You, Your expertise, your thing is real estate investing. And journeyers are always asking me. That's my people that's who listen to the podcast, who are on this journey. They want to understand. They want to know more about real estate, how to invest. And what I really, really love about you is one, you just have a personal story that I think is just amazing. And then 
Also, you teach people how to invest in real estate like at a, an affordable price. Yes. We're going to. Yeah, I know people are like, what? What? So we're going to get into all of that. But first off, thanks for joining us today. And I want to just start with your love for real estate, how that came about, because I also have a love for real estate. And for me, that was coming to this country without much and seeing my grandmother and mom mm-hmm. work hard. And my grandmother bought something without even knowing like it was a big deal. And she bought something. And that, I think, start, prompted me to be like, wow, hmm, I could do that, too. What was your like introduction to real estate and why did you pick this as your thing? OK, so first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been like a dream to be on this podcast. I love your guests. They're very empowering. It's all about the bigger purpose, not just money, but freedom and what that means. And that's just so in alignment with what you know I try to promote. So thank you so much for having me. And as far as how I started... I always loved houses. There's a lot of us out there that just have this housing bug. Having a home and shelter is one of like our basic needs. And there's a love affair both men and women have with it. So just buying a house on its own to live in for myself, to decorate, to make a home is just in my blood. And there's many of us out there because when I talk to investors, we always sort of gloss over how like we love transforming a house into a home. So it starts at that basic bug, right? (laughs) But there's a little bit of a roundabout story how I got to an investor. I was in the Las Vegas housing market in 2006. I had just graduated college and I lived in Vegas my whole life. And all of a sudden, from like 2000 to 2006, you just saw prices raise and it was all these Californians moving in and raising the prices. And so at that time, because I didn't know any better, I was like, this is just going to go to the moon forever. You know, I'm pretty sure soon we're going to have million dollar houses. So I bought my own as a primary residence and within like a year I had gotten laid off and it was the start of the housing market. So I bought at the top in 2006 at the very top before the crash. Uh, And so that got me started in purchasing a house, but it also got me started in understanding mathematics around houses and economics a little bit better. And I learned so much um, because I had to, when I got laid off and I still couldn't afford it, I had to move across country. And I was still actually paying on my mortgage about an extra $900 a month just to keep it current. $900, right? Because, you know, at that time, being in foreclosure just wasn't an option. But I'm halfway across the country in Ohio where I finally got a second job after I got laid off. And that's the first clue of, okay, never purchase a house where the rents are less than what your mortgage is. Lesson number one to be learned the hard way. And then other lessons came about that, about investing. Okay. So, I mean, it seems like you really just, you had a rough time at that point. So you got laid off. What was your job? I was a IBM consultant. So I was in sales, technical sales. So, you know, flying around a little bit around the country, new, fresh out of college, eager. So that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so you got laid off the recession, like a lot of things are happening. You had to move across country, you said, and you did find another job. So how did you bounce back? Because, you know, now you are so knowledgeable in this. Like, how did you bounce back to even just start your process of like learning and investing to where you are today? Right. And well, you know, what happened was one of those things where it can take you down or you can learn from it and become just better and stronger and wiser from And it was definitely that. So some of what I say is going to be like lesson number two, lesson number three. Okay. So I'm halfway across the country paying 900 a month. Like, oh, don't ever do this. But I'm like a foreclosure. I don't want a foreclosure. And then I'm at the other job for like a year and a half before I got laid off again. 
And right before I got laid off, I didn't really like where I was. I was in Dayton, Ohio. And coming from Las Vegas, it was a bit of a transition. So I found this place called Columbus, Ohio, an hour away. And I was like, I like this place way better. I'm just going to go there on the weekends. And I and in Ohio is where I found out that there were houses that cost $30,000, like in good neighborhoods, right? And so I just didn't know that, but it was that cross-country move that helped me figure it out. And there were a lot of stereotypes about the neighborhoods that they're in, but I walked and I was like, this neighborhood's fine. It's better than the one I grew up in, right? So it's all about perspective in that. And so I had purchased a, a condo for $35,000 and like a B plus, it's like a really nice neighborhood. And I was like, yeah, y'all are tripping. I'm never buying houses that cost more than this ever again. And then I had gotten laid off like maybe two weeks after I purchased that condo. And so, and here's the difference. This time when I got laid off, I have a condo where my monthly mortgage and expenses are like $350, right? So unemployment can take care of that. And it was just lesson number two, you know, always get housing that you can really afford and don't overlook the less expensive ones based off other people's stereotypes, go and see it for yourself. You cannot take other people's thoughts about what a neighborhood is like. You really just need to go see it and see what your comfort level is. And so I had to let the house in Vegas go. And my mindset was, I try to call and, and see if they could work with me because, you know, this is 2009 by this point, which it was getting dirty and messy. People were living in tents. It was just a really bad time in like modern history for a lot of people and, and the job loss. And so I couldn't get hired no matter how many hundreds of, you know, resumes I sent out online. I just couldn't get hired in Ohio, but I was okay because I had low cost housing. It was for $35,000. And even though I let the other houses go, I said, I have seven years seven years before it falls off, that's seven years for me to build and save up. And I refuse to give up on this dream. But that in itself sort of changed everything. Just the, okay, if I don't want to give up that seven years, well, what if I buy, I make 70,000 a year, I save half my salary, and I just buy one house a year, one house every two years. And that might sound extreme, but you know, when you're single, if you want to, you can be, I think, a relatively good saver. I think it's when you become a couple or a family, it might get more challenging. But just when you're just one person alone, you can choose the apartment, you can choose how much you save, you can choose how much you go out, and it's just your choice. Like That was doable in my head. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And by the time this falls off my foreclosures, I'm going to have you know three or four houses. Like I'm not letting this stop me. And so that sort of became more strategic about, well, how do I find more of these $35,000 houses? And I had went out to D.C. where I finally got a job after about seven months of searching in the market. But during that condo time, I like towards the end of it, I got a roommate and her $650 rent paid for my mortgage and it paid expenses. And so I just fell in love with the idea of low cost housing as being so much more affordable. And the neighborhoods can be very decent depending on where you are in the country. So when I finally went out to D.C., I was like, I want another $30,000 house. I started looking around. And I found them. And the thing is, you just have to travel to get there. And I guess I got really comfortable with traveling an hour up to, say, Baltimore, hour down to hour and a half down to Richmond. And I found these other areas, you know, and this was in um, about six, seven years ago and just started building the portfolio that way with the cash I had on hand and coming up with some creative financing techniques because I didn't have a sack of money behind me. Um, the people I generally work with, uh, the majority are first generational wealth. The majority are black professionals who go into low income neighborhoods. And most of the ones I work with, the people who are attracted to what I'm saying are people like me who came from these areas, but who sort of 
made it and adapted out of it, but also would like to be able to afford some real estate for financial freedom one day. And so a lot of that is a shared story from across the country. It does not matter. I have people from California, New York, D.C., places that are really expensive, but they have that shared story where they did grow up in a certain circumstances, but now they want to go from survive to thrive. So, yeah, so we just I just started doing it and finding, you know, regardless of where you're at in the country, we can find these spots and locations. OK, I have to jump in here. So because that's a lot like I mean, you went from floor closure to you bought now you're you have a portfolio. So I want to like dive deeper into that because yeah, you as you were talking, I'm thinking about just how technically you were able to do that. So you foreclosed on the home in Vegas, but you realize now first in Ohio that, wow, I, I could buy this like condo for cheaper than elsewhere. The rent that it cost me to keep this up, even though like you lost your job again, like you can afford it. And so it kind of just like that seed was planted where you realize like this is like, there, here's, here's another way. So my question to you was like at that point, you just knew that for the next seven years, you couldn't probably get a, approved for like a mortgage due to the bankruptcy. So you were just like intending on saving the money to buy stuff in cash. Is that correct? Yeah, that was the intention. Things changed. I was a little bit younger then. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, things did change, but that was the intention. Yeah, let's just do this. Like I'll live frugally. I know how to do it. And especially during that recession and the foreclosure, I got really good at watching like till debt do its part going on money blogs. So I got really financially frugal during that time uh, by force. But I was in a mindset that, yeah, this is possible. And I love that you said, because this is the thing too, this is a distinction when it's just you versus like if you have a family and husband and kids, like the journey is a bit different. So I love the fact that you said, okay, like if you were single, you really could just, it, the decision is all your own. Like you don't have to really consider anyone else. It's just you. So you can like really go more aggressive with your saving and investing versus having to consider maybe right. other little mouths to feed. Okay. Or a husband who might not want to be as frugal, you know, you know, or, or a wife who doesn't want to cut back. That's not their journey. Right. And then all of a sudden being that aggressive isn't as I mean, that's just not necessarily your choice to make. Or maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's 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 something that you have to compromise with, maybe. Okay. And so here's the thing. So I just want to like a snapshot. What's your portfolio look like now? Because then we can like really understand the growth that you saw during that time. What's like how many doors, how many units do you currently own? Yeah, it's not a huge portfolio. It's just four. So my portfolio was never that big in the first place. I, you know, I got to four and then I actually sold one last year because I'm going to funnel the funds into something else. So it was never that big. And that's when you come to a point where I had a choice to make, do I speak out or just stay silent? And I know when I, when I had the the forum, like I have to start telling people about this. This is amazing. It's a way to do it. It works. It'll work for people like me who want to do this. And I remember at that time, my husband said, cause he's a different type of soul than me, more modest And he was like, don't you need like 20 homes before you can start telling people how they can do it? And I had a choice and I was like, no, it would take me forever to get to 20 homes. Like that would be like, I'd be, you know, 50, but all this opportunity would be wasted. And I was like, no, I, you know, I have a small, I'll tell people what my portfolio is. I'll let them know it's not huge, but I'll tell them this is exactly what you do to get there. And so I was like, hey, it's not big, but let me go because this can really help someone because what I've learned is that you don't need a huge portfolio to get to $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 a month. I was still financially free, 
right? Like I didn't need hundreds of houses to make 3000 in passive income a month, which was not replacing my salary because by that point I had still, you know, got jobs and, you know, you're a senior IT specialist or IT consultant within six years, you're really breaking the six figure mark. So it wasn't, it was never going to replace that at three to five houses, but in this price range and being able to pay them off so quickly, you get to financial freedom, which for some people might be 2000 might be enough. 3,000 might be enough or 4,000 to be able to do what you actually want and not what you think you have to do to make a certain salary. So it's a different conversation and mindset about that. And I love that though, because it makes it more, you know, real and relatable to people because sometimes you think like, oh, you know, I need to have this like huge portfolio or maybe like even anyone listening, like you have a story like to tell you probably have some sort of success and it doesn't need to be, you know, crazy where, like you, you have to be far, far along the journey. You just have to be a step ahead. And if you can help someone else out and it's like you did share some information, that's very valuable. And so I love the fact that you like, you're not needing to necessarily have a huge portfolio to create this passive income that you currently have. So in terms of, and you know, it's funny. It's like we were talking about like the benefits of being single. And then like you just threw in that now you have a husband. So I'm curious to know, like when he like came on board, when you guys really combined and became like one as a couple, how was that? Was Is he into real estate? Was it hard to get him on board? Or you, do you keep things a little separated? Like, is he a partner in those ventures? One of them, yes. The others, he was sort of like swept along in my fervor. He wasn't quite sure this would work, <laughs> but he was down to help me out. So uh, I know the first property was in Baltimore and I was like, yeah, we're just going to go up there on the weekends. We're just going to fix this thing up. Now in my head, because I was a new investor, it was going to be three weeks. In reality, it took like 11 months. We went up there every weekend. So it was like uh, three months of Saturdays, but it took 11 months because we just go up there on like one Saturday a week. Um, So that's a newbie mistake you make. But hey, we get past it. We grow. We get better. So at first he was just there and um, he just helped out in all the things. And I always like to say, if you uh, renovate a house with a man who might be your husband and you can get through all the fights that you're going to have in renovating a house with all the economic decision, interior decorating decision, and, you know, and like get through that. That's a man you can marry because yeah. it gets messy in there when you guys, you have economic concerns, but then you have quality concerns and it's just you two and you both don't know as much as you'd like. And you're making these executive decisions, but you both are entering into the unknown. So that's a very interesting place we were. And so, and then the next property I bought after him, I did it all on my own because he was in Afghanistan as a contractor for a year. And that's when I did it. Um, So uh, he was, he's sort of involved, but for the most part, it was my money, my funds Mm -hmm. and what I did on my side. So because of that, I didn't have to necessarily give a ton of oversight or he did not have a lot of say, whereas he would have if we were splitting the costs. And I work with uh, people who are with their spouses and some people who are single. And I'm like, hey, I always ask, is your spouse on board? Because I'm going to tell you right now, it's not your money. It's our money. And they may not be willing to make the sacrifices that you're willing to make to have this dream happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's just the reality that, you got to talk about it because trust me, it's going to come up. Right. So I know one of the biggest questions that I get for people who are looking to get started in real estate investing is like getting the capital to do so. So how does one do that? How does one like, where do they look for sources of capital? How is it that they can like start funding their real estate investing dreams? 
Yeah. And if you want to get specific about real estate investing, we can go for that as well. So as far as the capital, I usually choose houses that are thirty to $50,000, um, regardless of where you're at. So if you're in California, we look in the Midwest. If you're in the Northeast, like New York, we look in the Northeast areas that have those um, markets. And when you're looking at houses that are thirty to $50,000, if you get a mortgage on them, you, uh, you know, for a $35,000 property, that's about 7,000, 20% down. So for a $50,000 house, that's $10,000 down. So um, I like to tell people to have ten dollars to $15,000 per house. Now, that is a large amount of money to some people, but for others, they have that in savings, right? So I'm very clear to say, I, you know, if you don't, if you have $2,000, well, we're going to set up a deadline for when you have, you know, twelve, dollars right? And we're going to put you on a budget and we're going to work towards that. Right. But then there are people who do have 15, 20 because they've been savers for the last 10 years. And they're like, okay, well, let me try to see if I can turn this into two properties and I can help them as well get started versus waiting until they have $50,000 to buy a $200,000 condo that makes $200 a month in cash flow. So that is sort of where we start. And that capital, that extra 10, that depends. Some people have, I have 15, and then we talk about, well, what's in your 401k? They're like, well, I have 30 there. Well, maybe you do the first one with your funds. And then for the second property, we withdraw maybe 10 to 15K. You'll have to take a penalty or this, or you can get a loan. And then that'll be the second property. And then we just start mapping it out with all the resources. A lot of people don't realize they have, but I like to tell them we do it incrementally. Like I'm not taking all of your money out of your 401k. We're taking a set amount that we agree on that you're comfortable with to put to something that will make you money each month. Not towards something frivolous, not towards something that doesn't pay you back, but specifically something that the entire intention is to build wealth for you or build passive income. And so we just start looking at different resources people have. And here's another point I like to make. For some people, it might take them two years to save up $12,000, okay? And I've worked with them. And for other people, it might take them six months, some people a year. That's okay. You shouldn't judge yourself on someone else's financial journey. You are you. You have a family. You have obligations. If you don't have as much as I do now, that's okay. When do we hit that mark so you can get started? So for some people, getting that sort of capital each time to put down on a house, maybe in four or five years, they have enough money to hit like, oh, I'm at 2000 in cash flow, maybe 3000 in cash flow. And other people just have more money up front when they get to me. And maybe it takes them two and a half years. But I always make a point of this because some people feel bad about their money finances. I'm like, don't feel bad. Let's just make a goal. That's all we're going to do. You can't judge yourself. I have clients who are like, yeah, I sold a townhouse in New York for 800000 I wish I did that. I, ha- You know, that's not my story. Like, you, there's no envy there. There's like, okay, this is what you have. This is what you can do. This is what you have, which may be more modest. And let's just go with, okay, one house a year for you, two houses a year for you. Right. And we just base it off their income and everyone's different. You can be a teacher um, who may be a little bit slower and then uh, and, and accumulating those funds. And you might be a doctor I've worked with who can get it a lot faster. But that's OK. You're on a two year journey. You're on a five. And we just go from there. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. OK, so there's a couple of things you mentioned I want to like dive deeper in. So you mentioned uh, 401k. And so for me, right, like, you know, I come from a school of thought that your money should stay in your 401k. You shouldn't take money out of it. So, uh, but I want to hear, like, uh, what I want to do, though, is provide people with options as content. And, you know, they, with the proper research and considerations to their own situation, 
make a decision on what works for them. So I want to hear from you the pros and cons and like what that looks like if someone is like borrowing from their 401k to buy a property. When is that a good thing? And when is that a bad thing? Because I don't necessarily want people like all to like run out, especially when they're already behind a retirement and say, oh, I can like use my money in my 401k to like buy a house or buy an investment property. But I do want to be able to present like this option, right? So what does that look like? What's the pros and cons to doing it that way? Thank you for doing that because with everything I do, I always try to say there's caveats and what works for one doesn't work for the other. So we always have to individualize it for you, right? And so uh, the conversation about 401k is, hey, how much do you have in there, right? Some people have 30,000, 80,000, some people have 10,000, right? And then the conversation on if you should use that is really personal. So for me personally, I don't want you taking from your 401k all of it at once. I don't want you taking, if you have a hundred thousand, taking 50, we're not necessarily demolishing it. So it's a conversation of, do you feel comfortable either taking a loan against it, which is great because a 401k loan does not show up on your um, credit report, like other type of consumer loans, right? So it doesn't, that's just more of a financing uh, perk. And it's about how much money do you have in savings? So if they have 18,000 saved and $30,000 in their 401k, to me, that's a little bit steadier position because with you having a saving, it shows that you make the income to be able to build that savings up again within your personal funds, as well as be able to sustain. If you do take this money out, you can pay it back in your 401k. So it's a delicate conversation of how much do you feel comfortable with? Now you do take penalties and you do have to claim it as income. Now, usually during renovations, there are going to be expenses. So some of that penalty that got attached to your total tax bill goes away when you start adding up all the expenses you incurred, placing your rental property in service, right? And so that's a conversation as well, because if those penalties are really, you know, $1,500 for $15,000 for withdrawing, well, then taking a loan is always an option as well. And so if someone didn't had like $2,000 in their pocketbook, but 80,000 in their 401k, it really is a conversation because I will tell you, hey, I mean, I'm good at what I do, right? And I don't have any horror stories, but something could happen. What if we put our money down on something we just didn't know? It's like $20,000 to fix, which is all the money you have. Like the, at the, I say, hey, it, it is putting this money at risk, not at risk because you don't know what you're doing, just because on the off chance that we, that, you know, we put it down on something, And throughout all of our due diligence, throughout all the inspections, throughout us looking at it, me looking at it, everyone looking at it, we miss something. It could possibly be at risk. And then a conversation. What does that mean if your, you know, $80,000 portfolio is down by 15 and it goes bad? What does it mean if it's your 30,000 and we take 15 out and something goes horribly wrong? So it's just a conversation on how comfortable they are with the risk that is inherent in purchasing a property where you don't know exactly what's behind the scenes and going from there. Um, So it's either which way, if some people don't want to touch it, some people don't want credit at all. They just want all cash. And so it's just a conversation and discussion. I do say though, this is the one thing where we're doing where, I mean, we're looking to get three, four, $500 in cash flow a month that will add up. So paying it back is the intention. It's not frivolous and it's an asset where 10 years later, hopefully there's appreciation. Hopefully you can sell it for a profit. So it's not, so yes, it is at risk, but it is a risk that people are usually willing to take because it's just such a specific, we're trying to get this to generate cash for us type mentality that they're usually okay with it. And so that's just individual. I do ask them about it. 
Um, I do tell them, you know, sort of not necessarily the pros and cons, but, you know, these are the results. These are what my clients typically do. They either take the hit or they do a loan. It's your choice. But are you comfortable with that? And I like to say we're only doing 10, 15K at a time, not your whole portfolio. And I do that on purpose so you can get one under your belt. See if you like it. Did this feel comfortable? Did you feel that you were overstretching? Does this feel, you know, before we go and maybe you do that again or if you pull back. So that's how I preface it. All right. I appreciate that like perspective. And I, but I must say like, as you're talking, I'm just like, I just don't want people like going out um, in their head and just thinking like, oh, like now I can, you know, take this money and do this. What we're talking about here is, you know, Lisa, obviously you have an expertise in this. You're talking about um, really it's an individual like process for people. Like it's not just a one size fits all. So I just want to caveat that because I personally don't agree with taking out money from a retirement account. To, I'd rather the person, like if I'm working with someone, I'd rather them save that money up um, on their own because I think part of that too was just like be, like that fiscal responsibility, understanding like what it takes to like to, to build that up. Like that's a muscle to build up. Um, so like to to go the other way again, I'm not saying I know that that's this worked for you and it worked for some of your clients. Can I tell you just one story too? Yeah, yeah. And there's a difference in age as well. Um, when I work with people who are 55 and they're facing retirement with their 401k, um, they're much more willing to do it because they're right there at the specter. It's, it's not a 30-year thing in the future. They're like, look, I'm retiring in 10 years. I'm going to be 65. And all of a sudden, they look at their $120,000, $100,000 portfolio, and they've been doing real estate investing. They're just like, it's a different conversation when you're 30 versus when you're right around the corner. And the people who are at 55 with me, they're more willing because they're just if they don't see what they need to see to keep up a lifestyle and for them to actually retire, they're a lot more willing to, you know, take a little bit and start doing this to see if that might be what they can rely on in the older age. So there is an age perspective in retirement around the corner that might make it a lot easier for one to do it than the other. Right. And that's fair. That's fair. And and I, and I love that. Again, it's like keeping this all in perspective. So, okay. I want to like, Talk more about now, where do you find these $30,000 homes? So you said like if you're in New York, so I'm in New York City, as you know, like super expensive to buy anything really here where where you want to like own something. So where does one look for these type, these these homes or these investment properties in these price ranges? And I guess before we get to that, there's a distinction here between investment properties. So you're not living in it, you're just strictly going to invest. And then the distinction of like then, buying a owner-occupied home. So what does one, if you have no property and you're, you're listening to this, is there one that someone should do first if they really want to build wealth and reach financial freedom? And then we could talk about where to find those properties. That's a good question because I get it a lot, right? They're like, Lisa, should I buy an investment or this? Because, you know, they want to end the rat race, but they also want their own home, right? So I, I, I'm like starting to laugh a little bit because it's a common question. And all I do is tell them the story of my clients and what we've done. And so when I was living in Arlington, Virginia, I had, you know, a really nice house in Richmond, a house in Baltimore, a house in Ohio, right? And they were, they were all really nice because I fixed them up very decently. And I was living in a crappy apartment in Arlington, Virginia, because in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of DC, it would have been half a million dollars for a house at that time. Now it's like $700,000. And so by the time it would take for me to get my own house, I wouldn't be able to get other rental properties. Right. And so in that case, if you live in an area where you can't own your own home, then having a portfolio of income that you can rely on each year that adds to your own income as it ages is an amazing thing. 
And my clients who usually also make the choice to invest first versus house first, they're usually facing something. Like I work with people who are like, we all are losing our jobs in six months. I want to have some income coming in for when that happens. And usually they're not trying to get their own place. They're trying to get the income to support it. So your circumstances can lead you to do one versus the others. And then outside of that, it's your choice. If you're in a place where you can actually get affordable housing that doesn't cost too much and doesn't make it so expensive where you can't get other investment property, then do it. And it really, and some people live in very high expensive areas and other people live in Indianapolis where you can get a nice home for a hundred thousand, maybe get a seven hundred, eight hundred dollar mortgage, and they can still afford, you know, a few forty thousand dollar houses without their debt to income being sky high. Right. So I just like to give you that story to give you perspective of who usually does it first, who usually gets the investment first versus owner occupant and things to keep in mind. And at the end, so it's never a yes or no with me. It's always like your individual choice. But let me show you some examples of when people were urged to versus when they weren't. Mm, okay. And then when it comes to now looking right for property, if where do you find these properties? Let's talk about the areas and locations. Yeah, I do have a huge, like a big enough following where if I say a market, it can get tapped out within like a week, right? I have like 47,000 investors who are like, what's this new spot? So I usually don't get specific, but on um, my open platforms, I usually save that for my clients. But what I will say is that we look at you individually and first thing to need to know is the kind of cash flow you can expect will change depending on what part of the country you're in. So if you're in the South, you can't necessarily, you know, expecting $800 in cash flow is just not possible. Right. The places that get the most cash flow. So if you buy a house after all your expenses, your cash flow is what's left. The place with the most cash flow is in the northeast. It's Pennsylvania. It's Delaware. It's um, Maryland. It's places where the rents are high, but you can still find these spots with the lower price properties. The Midwest has very uh, is in mid tier on the cash flow. Like they have higher rents than the south because the cost of living slightly higher. But it doesn't um, it's not as high as in the more urban areas that just have more population, which causes that price increase in the northeast. So the Midwest is there and then the south south will have the least amount. And the reason I say this first is because if you're coming to me and you're in the south, I just need to get your head on straight about what to expect. Like you might find a thirty thousand dollar house that's in great condition, but rents are seven hundred dollars, whereas that same, you know, thirty thousand dollar house in some part of Ohio can get you $900, right? And it could be a pretty significant jump in that monthly rent. And I say this first because I have clients from all over and I want them to just be real clear about what their expectations should be. And this just comes from six years of experience doing this every day. You know what part of the regions will yield what. So that's the first part, get your head straight on what to expect. So if you're in California and you wanna go to the Northeast to get the most cash flow, great, that's where it's at. And be prepared to fly the extra hour to pass the Midwest to get to an East Coast destination. And so um, if you're in the South and you want, you know, so Northeast, if you're in the North, you know, so it's just something to wrap around. Now, secondly, where they're at. So if you're in New York, generally, they usually stay in the Northeast. So the Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, if they're in um, the Southeast, Mid-Atlantic, maybe North Carolina, South Carolina, they can usually stay within their state, but they'll have to travel outside the major cities. And my Californians and Texans, in which I work with a lot, because I work with a lot of people who make you know really good income, but affording a house with that income just isn't really possible without an extensive, extreme amount of overhead. They usually fly to the Midwest, and then from there, it's just an um, it's just a systematic method I've created of looking at where do you fly into, where can you drive to, what is the inventory. 
And what are the kind of homes that you actually want to work with? Some people want houses that at 45K, they don't need any work. And okay, where is that in relation to you? Is that really hard to get to? Can you fly to it easily? Can you drive to it easily? Is it worth it? And then there might be some properties that might be easier for them to get to, but it might require a ten, fifteen thousand dollars worth of rehab. So yeah, it's forty five. It might need fifteen and be all in for sixty. But I don't have to drive an extra hour to get to the other market. And so that is when the individualization comes in because we'll sit down and look at you know how much free time do you have, how much availability do you have to be going after these really awesome gems, you know, the ones that maybe you have to hook to get to, but are really worth it. And it's just a conversation because some people have the time to invest in the really good deals and other people will go, you know what, I really don't. So maybe I'll stick with this and rearrange my budget a little bit and, you know, get something that's easy for me to get in and out of. So there's a conversation with all these different factors of which markets are available. What do you want to see in the market and where are those in relation to you? And then So I have like an Excel sheet with the tracker information and we just go one by one to see with their circumstances, the amount of money and capital they have and their comfort level with renovation. Because I have some clients who don't want to do any, they just don't want that overhead. And so they're going to have to maybe do more for others who are willing to do maybe $10,000 worth of like cosmetic and some other, you know, windows that need to get done. And so that's where it really gets individualized on what we're looking for and how much you're willing to sacrifice. I usually try to let them know what they'll sacrifice though before they purchase because you don't want to find out afterwards. And then you're like, oh, oh, I don't like driving that extra two hours or I don't like X or I didn't like doing that. You know, I try to be upfront about it. So that's sort of where you try to help people and avoid those newbie mistakes beforehand rather than after. And I'm also assuming you're looking at like the return, right? So like for that investment, for that amount down and the amount of expenses it takes, like what's that cash on cash return? Because, you know, equally, like if you put, say someone had that $20,000 of cash saved up and now they're looking to invest. So, you know, you look at all the numbers that it takes to to buy the property, renovate the cash flow, and then the potential return on sale if you intend to sell, like what that return looks like versus if you would have took that $20,000 and invested it somewhere else, you know, maybe in an index fund, just doing something different. Do you compare? Because I think some people you have to like also like consider like the effort, right? So when you're talking about investing outside of maybe like not even it doesn't even need to be far, right? But you just investing in general in real estate, it can be uh, time consuming, especially up front to like pick the right deal. And then depending on if you're going to be really hands on. So how does one then compare the opportunity of investing in real estate and being a owner of real estate versus investing in more passive investments like an index fund or stocks? How does one decide between the two? All right. Uh, There is a couple nuggets in there to delve into. So usually by the time that they get to me and they're looking at real estate investing, they've already decided that they've done enough with stocks. They've done enough with investing in the stock market and other more passive items. And they want the bigger returns that you can get with real estate. So usually they've already made that decision by the time they look for the information, right? So I, I never get anyone who's asked me if one's better than the other. By the time they're with me, they're like, look, I'm trying to make this uh, this happen because of whatever reason. And two, the time involvement is something we talk about. That's where the individualization, because how much are you willing to do to get that best deal? Like how far will you travel? And it's a conversation you need to have. And it's the difference between having a rental property portfolio you're really happy with and proud of versus one where you're like, you don't really like what you built. And so that's a big conversation you need to have 
when making these decisions before you plunk money down. The other part of it that you touched on was a rental property owner versus a landlord. It's so funny. I joined this Facebook group for like landlord roundtable and it's great. And they're asking all these questions. And I was like, I don't do this. Uh, You know, property management is a really big part of the system, you know, of, of doing this. And so I don't do those day to days. I do other things. I make bigger decisions. But as far as like how to place the three day pay and quit, well, my reputable property manager do that. And that is a whole subject on its own, because I'll tell you right now, like one of the things that I insist on is if you are investing out of state, depending especially how far you have to travel, there are certain things you need to do more so than others. And one of those is make sure you have more than three to four property managers in that location who do business in where your house is. And that may be working class neighborhood, maybe lower income neighborhood, just depends on what market, what it's called and what the demographic might be, right? And it might seem like a little thing, but I like to tell people for my Ohio property, it's been nine years and I'm on my third property manager. The first one I didn't like because they weren't communicating or following up with the fees the way they needed to. So I fired them and hired another one. I liked the second one. They were really prompt and communicative, but they were really expensive on my turnover costs. I was like, you're taking all my money. And then I'm on my third property management company. And so I tell people that story to go, well, if I didn't make sure that they had enough property management companies there, do you see how I would have been stuck after the second one if there was no one else to do my business? And then I would have had to manage something I don't want to manage. So part of being strategic. So I know some people want to start talking about the deal and the cash flow, but part of it before we even get there, the difference I make is making sure the market is supporting you and can support you throughout your long-term career with that. And so that is a different conversation too. And some people are like, you know what, if I have to do it, I'm okay. I don't do anything after work. I can take phone calls. I have a flexible job. I actually don't mind it. I like talking to the tenants, which is cool, right? Then you don't have to be as stringent on that. Um, And then other people like me are like, hey, I just want to travel. You tell me what's going on, fix it and call it a day. I don't want to be interrupted. I'm not making a second job. You know, I have enough jobs being a wife and a mother and a business owner and a real estate investor. Like I don't need more, right? And then depending on your tip limit, that's how I set it up and property management is a big part of it, but you also have to understand property management isn't always, not everyone's A plus. And you just have to understand that and go into it with your eyes wide open, asking the right questions and just understanding you need like a plan B or C or D if um, they don't work out, but going into that with open eyes. So that leads me to my next question. Actually, it's a really good lead in. It's one of the things that stops people, right? So they realize that maybe they can't invest immediately where they are because it's expensive. Yeah. And they need to go further out, whether that's 30 minutes further out, an hour, a flight, like they need to go further than what they're comfortable with. How does one get comfortable with that? Because I feel like that's the biggest barrier because the price points or the deals that would work for someone is out there. It's just not maybe where they're comfortable so how does one get comfortable or what are the things that they should consider? You already gave us one, a couple of things actually you gave us about making sure the market can support you, meaning like there's like if property management companies, more than one in that area. But how does one even like start to get comfortable with this like idea of going further out? It's a lot of little systems that add up to you being fully in control and aware. One of the systems is making sure you deal with contractors who can take photographs before and after. One of the systems is making sure, you know, property management is overlooking any work that's being done. Another part of the system is making sure that the market is set up 
to support your investment as far as appreciation or long-term longevity economically. And like one of the last things that you put into place is how easy and what is the cost to get to that market? Oh, another one. There's so many. (laughs) There's so many. Another one is like how much supply and inventory? What is that inventory like? Is it good condition or bad condition for the price? And what's the return on the rent? So there's a lot of different questions that go into it on finding the right market. So when you put those all together, though, and you make a decision, you know why you're investing in that city, why that city is best set up to support you, why you chose it strategically out of the other five or six cities you could have done it, and how it aligns with what you really want in a business, not what you think you have to settle for, as far as like how much return, how much um, renovation you're comfortable with upon purchase to get it rent ready. Does that make sense? So you put a lot of little... Uh, metrics together that a lot of people overlook. And yeah, you go from there. And then outside of that, it's a lot of people want the low price houses, but they're scared to sometimes go in a neighborhood with like, uh, just to be honest, a lot of they want the low price house, but they don't want like any minorities. And it's just like, I do find that, hey, like, get what you get and understand who you're talking to. Like, I don't just say go buy in these houses. I always put a lot of, uh, you should be thoughtful and culturally aware of the neighborhood you're going into. And some of these places, they're the last affordable places people could live. Going in there and trying to flip it is not positive for the community and not what I necessarily highly encourage in a lot of places. Like some of it's going to come and you can't stop it. But going in there to do that, I think, isn't being thoughtful or compassionate to what is going on in this country. And a lot of people in working class neighborhoods are getting squeezed. Their wages are not going up. I also say, um, I do notice that my minority investors tend to do better in minority neighborhoods, right? And so it just is what it is. I do find that they're more comfortable in places where other people want the low price tag, but they don't want to see anyone that doesn't look like them or is of the same socioeconomic bracket, right? So I do have to say, just be thoughtful and mindful of what you're walking into and what you're really comfortable with. Because if you're uncomfortable with any of it, just raise your price range and go somewhere else that you are because your tenants might sense you being uncomfortable and they're going to assume that you're doing it because of their race and demographic. It might not be, it might be you just haven't really navigated different classes, maybe the way I have, because I had to going from working class to like an IBM consultant, right? And so it's just a reality now that this is getting like bigger and people are talking about it now. It's a reality that you need to have in place and go into knowing before you just buy a cheap house. It's not just about a cheap house. Um, even though you can get them. Yeah, I like the the considerations about the neighborhoods because as you mentioned, affordability, right? Affordability. But then also like, even if you have this like mindset, oh, I'm just going to go in and flip it, right? Because there's a difference between buying something with the intention to flip it and then buying something long-term yes, or at least for a few years to get that cash flow. And you're totally right. Like if you're going in with the intention to flip it, then that also creates pressure on the neighborhood itself because that increase, that appreciation puts it out of a price range probably for some of the people that ex- live there existingly. Um, so I, I love that you're talking about that and that's a conscious thing that you, you keep in the frame of mind. Yeah. And my, and the people I work with have that same passion. Right. And so that's why I love what I do because we're making real change. And so we have conversations on, I have not raised the rents on my properties. I don't need to, to be profitable, even though I'm allowed legally to do it three to 5% a year. But what I get in return is I get the retired couple who's been in my property for six years and they're not going anywhere and they keep it up and they're immaculate. So I have a literally a long-term tenant 
who pays on time every single month and will do so for the next 20 years. Or my my uh, in my house in Ohio, I tend to get like single mothers and single fathers. And they pay on time. They keep my place up amazing because I did a good job on the renovation. I don't go, oh, these people don't deserve it. I fix it up nice for the investment sake as well as for my long-term to keep down my long-term maintenance expenses. And they keep the place up. So yeah, I can, you know, my property manager's like, hey, you can get 850. And I'm like, you know what? I'm still profitable. I, I eventually I do want to raise it, but I'm not just going to spring it up on people. And so it's also a conversation of, is money the end all be all? If you have enough, can you be conscious? Um, do you raise your rents enough to cover your costs, but not necessarily to get the most money, knowing that you're going into lower income neighborhoods that are the last places people can afford to live on certain salaries? And, you know, and I also like to say, you know, just because you work as a mechanic and I work in a white collar job, doesn't mean like you deserve to like travel an hour each way because that's where you can afford to live and only see your out your kids for 30 minutes. Right. And so it's just a conversation people don't have. And some people get like offended, but the people who are attracted to this message are the ones that tend to follow me. And they're like, you know, things need to change and we can be that change. And that's what I I do. Right. Compassionate and responsible investing. It works out for both parties, both parties um, involved in the situation. Okay. I feel like this is definitely going to be helpful. Like just this conversation alone for people like opening their, expanding their minds to like the possibilities and to help them know that there are affordable investments, real estate out there still. And, you know, one of the questions, it's funny that comes up and I know like no one can predict this, right? Like no one can predict when the next, well, let's not say if the next real estate, like kind of bubble or collapse or whatever you want to call it. Right. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. Sometimes there are a lot of indicators and, you know, history repeats itself. So is there ever a time in which you feel like, you know, be cautious. All right. It's not a good time to buy. Like, I know that's going to differentiate between like region and there's a lot of factors that go into it. But what are your overall general thoughts on the market itself, the real estate market in general? Yes, you can. You know, um, coming from the top of the market and getting out of it, there were some hints that do tell you about a market. I just went home to Vegas and I was looking at houses and they're out of control. They're over the top. Right. So there are it's going to be location specific because what's going on in Vegas doesn't mean it's happening in San Francisco where they just have money on top of money on top of money. So that's why it's going to be specific. Some places are going to be harder hit than others, depending on the economics of the place, who's coming in and who are the people on the ground who live there and what they can afford. Right. So some places, so let me give you Vegas. I just went back. I actually did a video on this on the Vegas housing market is in another bubble. So they are going to get a sports stadium and you get there and you realize that they're selling their houses that they've lived in at the same prices they're selling new houses. Two, I looked it up. Their eviction rate is sky high because the people who live there, their average income, you know, is 30,000 a year. But the housing expenses are someone who lives who makes 60,000 a year. So that's another indicator. And then you have those that you can look up and then word on the street when you ask your cousins and sisters and brothers is, yeah, we have vacant houses everywhere. So people are trying to raise the rents, but the rents are not keeping pace with the actual people who would rent out your place. So they're either vacant or they're getting evicted and they're trying to sell their houses for the same price as new houses. That is an overinflated market. So sometimes you can see things like that if the housing costs out paces the majority of what people who live there actually make. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. And so it's a whole bunch of little things that, and so in that specific location they are right now, it makes no sense for me to buy a new house for 220 that's 1,400 square feet versus your house is for 240 that you've lived in for 15 years. So there are some times when it's really out of whack. So looking at that, how much it costs to rent versus how much your mortgage note is, is one of the biggest indicators of what's going to happen. And then looking at the the median salary and going, well, if people are making a median of this and that's a big part of the people and you can calculate, you know, you shouldn't pay more than 30% for housing, but even if it goes to 50%, if it's above that, then you also know that you're going to come for a crash. That's all good points for, you know, people to like start thinking about and having kind of guide just like their thoughts and be just more aware of even their current, like they can look all these things up now, like, okay, what's their current real estate market like now um, in their immediate vicinity? What's some places that they're interested in? Okay, Lisa, now I want to get more about like you, like more into your story. And so, you know, you talked about like receiving passive income from your investments and reaching a level of financial freedom. You have your own business um, where you're helping people do this. And we'll talk, you can share that a bit more at the end of the like conversation. But where are you now, like financially? Are, do you feel like you've reached a place where you've reached financial freedom completely? I know there are different levels to it. And then also kind of like what's like next for you? Because, you know, the premise of this show is to help people on a journey to financial freedom slash financial independence. I kind of always group them in two different I say it separately, but I kind of mean the same thing. So yeah, is, is financial independence something you're wanting to achieve? What are your thoughts on that? Where are you currently in your journey? Well, for me, and I'll always say that it's not necessarily that you don't have to work. It's you can actually do what you want, right? So I'm more on that spectrum. So I would say that is uh, financially independent. I can do what I actually want to do. I can do what my gifts are, not what pays a certain salary. So I sort of have to keep it because I built a lifestyle around it, right? And so my journey is I think everyone should have a little bit of real estate making passive income and then uh, also an online And here's why, and this is for a very practical reason. Real estate gives me an expansion to hard assets that can appreciate, that I can leverage, that I can get equity out of if needed. Real wealth that you can wheel and deal with, sell off and use as needed. Online real estate, well, I remember five years ago, they said half of all money transactions taking place happen online. So that's why I like people having some sort of online presence even if it's a blog or an Amazon FSO, but like understanding that dynamic because the majority of money is passed online and for you not to be a part of it, I think you're going to miss out, right? And online businesses give you that flexibility to be able to work from anywhere and other benefits as well. And it scales up, right? I have one house that makes $900 a month, but there's many people that I can charge a $10 book to, right? If you sell a book. So, or ebook or whatever it might be, or a training manual um, that you have or a membership site. So I, I literally think the best for everyone is to have both the hard assets that have a level of stability that the online world does not and online. So that's my story. So I say I'm financially independent. I can do what I want. I actually have finally found something I love to do. All those jobs I took after college were to make money. And this is something that it's big. I think it's a bigger mission. I think the more people who think about affordable housing as an investor, it's more important to our society and has impacts. And I've seen the impacts when people leave and they're just like, yeah, I'm doing good for my community and I'm making money and I'm changing generational wealth. 
right? And so now I'm doing something where I love to do it regardless. So it's it's not work in the traditional sense. It's nothing you dread. And that's where a place I'd love for everyone to be. Mm-hmm. I will say now we're selling our house, which I also use the same principle. So it's appreciated. I went to the neighborhood everybody was scared of. And I was like, there's nothing scary about this neighborhood. This is just fine four years ago. And it appreciated 50% in four years, right? So those principles apply not only to your investments, but going under the radar, making sure your rents are more than the house you purchase. If you buy in that neighborhood, you will have extreme equity going into the future. So it's the same principles for that. Um, We're selling and we're actually my lifelong dream. And I'm sort of dragging my husband along and my daughter who's excited. She's two, but I know she's going to be excited. She's more like me than anything. We're going to go live abroad and I'm going to go and I can work from my laptop. Um, I have my investment income coming in. I won't have the expenses of my house, my house that we're selling. And so the same expenses I would use for my house, I think with between my mortgage and all the expenses like utilities, it comes out to like 1700 a month. Well, when I looked at it, I can sublet apartments in different parts of England, Italy, France, not right in the city center, but outside of it, or maybe not in Paris, but in Versailles, you can rent those these places out for less than what I pay for my house here, right? So now we're going to go abroad and the way we're doing it is like 90 days in each country, which gives us time to settle and be in one place, but like go on weekend trips to do things. And that was a lifelong dream. And I'd like to say, hey, if anyone wants to do it that way, and I don't have to go to hostels or slum it like I used to, I say six years, three years to build up a small rental property portfolio to a couple thousand a month in passive income. And then another two to three years building an online business that you can work from anywhere to two to three thousand. And then all of a sudden you can go live overseas, but it's not with uh, the the budget traveling I did when I was 22, where I went to like the worst parts of town in Nicaragua because it was $2 a night, right? Like I did that, but <laughs> not the best decision, but that's how much I budgeted for, right? But now you can do it as, you know, with a difference and bring your family and rent a two, three bedroom house that's on the beach in Portugal. And so so that's what I say, like, hey, like you can have your dreams. Maybe it's not overnight, but like there's tangible steps that you can do it. So I'm happy. Like I'm helping people. I'm spreading a culture of responsible investing that I think is extremely important for people to not only say, but stand strong in. And when they talk to other people, stand strong and say those things and start that conversation. I think that's the biggest part of like what I do um, when I help people build this. You can have what you want. It just takes a little bit of time. It sounds like a wonderful life you created for yourself. So um, congratulations on that. And I'm looking forward to kind of seeing just more like I'm loving this idea of like living abroad and in different areas and how you set that up for yourself. So thank you for sharing that. Now, please let people know where they can find out more about you, maybe follow you on your journey if they want to continue to see like what unfolds for you. Thank you so much. So you can reach me at, you can go to my website, affordablerealestateinvestments.com. It's just how it sounds, affordable real estate investments. I'm very straightforward. I'm not into catchy tunes. Like I'm so straightforward. I'm like an engineer at heart. You can do that if you want. You can also watch me on YouTube. You just go to youtube.com user slash affordable REI or just put Lisa Phillips Real Estate. I'll pop right up if you want to see some of my weekly live videos on all coaching subjects, all subjects that are sort of, I did a whole bunch of videos like about five years ago, but now I'm doing new ones because things have changed and just touching on the new changes and nuances in the investing world. 
And if you also go to my site, you can also get access to a free paperback copy of my book I just launched in August, Investing in Rental Properties for Beginners. I personally want everyone to read that book, even if you don't agree with it. I'd rather you read that book with practical info before you start listening to other people, because then you'll have a perspective. Because a lot of the traditional advice is that don't go in the neighborhoods that me and you know the people I work with have been thriving in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they weren't necessarily invalid advice. It just wasn't the complete advice. So that's why I like for people to read mine, because if you do it the other way around, I get people who are like, oh, man, I bought this. It's overpriced, but it's in a nice neighborhood, but it doesn't cash flow and it's taking up all my income. Like I get those stories because, you know, the messenger matters, right? And so if the messenger sort of has a different or bigger pocketbook than you do, then it's just like, oh, well, you know, maybe you overextended listening to that advice. So I just prefer people have mine and others before they put their money down just to know what's possible. Right. Love that. Love that. And I will link all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on, sharing your knowledge and your story. Thank you. Your questions were great. I loved them. Thank you. And I hope this was great for everyone out there. Blessings. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Lisa, the conversation. Hope it got your wheels turning about how you yourself can start to look at investing in real estate. If you're brand new to it, if you thought that you couldn't afford it, hopefully this episode gave you some tangible tips and things you can do to get started. Once again, if you want the episode show notes, go to Journey to Launch dot com slash episode 92. That's journey to launch.com slash episode 92. Also make sure you're following me on social media at journey to launch. I'm there on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Love hearing your feedback. Take a screenshot, tag me on it, share it with your family and friends. This is how we get the podcast more out there so we can get more journeyers on the journey. All right, now let's read the journeyer review of the week from Apple Podcast. So C3C370 says, awesome podcast. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. I've shared it with friends. I appreciate your knowledge and passion to help others become financially independent. I have learned so much and always look forward to new episodes. May God continue to bless you so that you can help others. This is your calling and you are on the right path. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really um, love reading all your reviews. And if you want to hear your review, read it on the podcast, then leave one at Apple Podcasts. If you listen there, if you don't listen, totally fine. I just appreciate you listening and sharing this with your loved ones. All right. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.